When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Today we don't have time for a top section, but we do have an amazing interview with Nathan Tankus. But due to time constraints, our broadcast listeners might not be able to hear the full interview. Please check out our website, imhoppingmad.com, for the full interview, or find us on iTunes. Coming up, I'll be discussing the UK constitutional crisis here on Hopping Mad. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. The United Kingdom is careening towards a constitutional crisis, and the UK Parliament and Scottish Parliament are headed to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. And all of this, of course, relates to Brexit. This is being caused because the current constitutional structure of the UK is a devolution system, which means that certain powers have been granted to the devolved administrations and the UK government is not really supposed to legislate in those areas at all. And and the actual specific language is that the UK government will not normally legislate in those areas. And there's a lot of conventions because, uh, and conventions are those like wink and a nod handshake agreements because the UK doesn't have a constitution. It just kind of pretends to. Uh, so it's all done by convention and by handshake and by an agreement that you aren't going to do things, even though there's nothing that could stop you from doing things in, in, in the way that there is in the United States where, you know, Trump can't do whatever the hell he wants because we've got this constitution that stops him from doing that and a Supreme Court that can tell him no, whereas the UK doesn't really have that. However, it, it's possible that, uh, you know, this act will be declared illegal, in which case the, the, uh, central government will have the choice to repeal large sections of the devolution settlement in order to do what they want to do, which would be an even bigger political disaster. In any case, the, the area that people are arguing about now is there are 25 of 111 powers that are being returned from EU legislation to the UK that are supposed to, by law, go to the devolved administrations. And these things are stuff that sound innocuous, like agriculture and and fertilizer rules and stuff like that, to stuff that's really, really important. Uh, For example, food geographical indications, you know, being able to call something Scottish or British, which is which is politically important or stuff like regulation of offshore oil drilling. Which is also really important, especially to people in, in Scotland where the Piper Alpha disaster is still sits heavily on people's memories. Piper Alpha being a, a massive disaster in which a large number of people were killed in 1988, I think it was. This is important stuff to Scotland. And what's most infuriating about the 25 of 111 issues, powers that, that we're talking about, is I can't tell you what they are. And, I'm, and that's because, to quote Neil Bibby, 
in uh, speaking in the Scottish Parliament uh, in a committee. He said, uh, the Parliament and the public do not know what the areas of disagreement between the UK government and the Scottish government. Reportedly, there are 25 of them. Yesterday at the Delegated Powers and Law Reform Committee, Michael Russell said that he could not publish those areas because he did not have the agreement from the UK government. So we know that there are 25 areas of disagreement in this massive list of 111 powers, some of which are extremely important. But we're not allowed to know what those areas of disagreement are. Neither are the Scottish people, neither are the British people, neither are, uh, and that was a Labour Party member in the Scottish Parliament. He's not allowed to know. What? what the areas of disagreement are, because the UK government is refusing to release that information. So the Scottish government can't, because they're not allowed to release their communications with the UK government. If the UK government says you can't release this by law. This so crazy. Yeah, this issue is so important that the Scottish government is taking it to the Supreme Court and the UK government thinks it would be so terrible for people to know about what the 25 issues are that they don't want to tell anybody. And there have, of course, been leaks. So some of it is agriculture, apparently. But another area is fisheries. And that's just very, very, very deeply ironic because fisheries, uh, with the UK Common Fisheries Act, are one of the areas where a lot of people in Scotland voted for Brexit because they wanted control of the fisheries back in Scotland. And now the control of fisheries aren't coming back to Scotland like they voted for when they voted for Brexit. So even the Scottish Brexiteers are not getting what they want from this. And so now they're, they're heading to the Supreme Court and, you know, there's disagreement in the Scottish Parliament. Well, ish. Uh, the Labour member of parliament who's the Scottish presiding officer, who is a unionist, does not believe that the Scottish government has the right to overrule the UK government on devolved areas. However, the Lord Advocate of Scotland, who is appointed by the Crown in consultation with the Scottish Parliament, his name is James Wolfe. Uh, he is the uh, most highly ranked lawyer in all of Scotland. Uh, he says that the Scottish government actually does have that power under current devolution law. So nobody knows what's going to happen here. But the Brexit scenario is ripping the British Constitution, such as it is, and that it doesn't really exist, to pieces and pointing out the degree to which the British Constitution doesn't actually exist. And no one knows what's going to happen because the Supreme Court's about to rule on law and convention and it's not like the U.S. where the Constitution says what it says. So nobody really knows the outcome of this. And there won't be precedent. There won't be any precedent at all for this. Because this hasn't happened before. Uh, because the U.K. government has always sort of respected devolved areas before. And if it wasn't going to respect those devolved areas, it wouldn't devolve them in the first place. So breaking norms is just working everywhere, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So Scotland is going to, uh, on this timeline, I think it's the 16th, uh, Wednesday the 16th, where it's the final date for the Scottish Parliament to indicate consent or lack of it to Westminster before the Brexit bill goes to the House of Lords or finishes in the House of Lords. 
And at that point, the bill will go from the House of Lords to the Commons. And at that point, no amendments can be made. So the clock is ticking down to the 16th. And uh, according to the Scottish government's Brexit minister, there is, which is Mike Russell, there is one word, just one, that would resolve this problem. And that is to take the section that says the British government will consult with the Scottish government and change that word to agree, meaning that the British government will wait for the agreement of the Scottish government as it relates to devolved matters. So if they change that one word, this could all be dealt with. But That's a the, pretty big if. Where is yeah. Jeremy Corbyn on this? Where's Labour leadership on this? Nowhere. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's the one of the, one of the areas where the Jeremy Corbyn has just like shown very little to no leadership at all. So Jeremy Corbyn is fighting his own party because uh, Scottish Labour is pro-EU and pro-single market membership, and Jeremy Corbyn is not. So he and his own party can't even agree on what to do about the big matters like single market membership. They're not ready to deal with any kind of leadership on things like devolution. They're, they're nowhere near that because labor is, uh, the, the word I've heard is an omni shambles and so, so are the too Tories, busy stabbing each other in the back to do anything significant. <laughs> Great. That, Hmm. What party does that sound like? <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of a. I can't think of a political party where that's happening over here. Bernie no. could have won. No. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, but uh, moving on. Is, if Corbyn so the, actually showed some political leadership, I need to say that if he was actually going to show some political leadership, uh, rather than just be granola granddad, he could actually accomplish some things here. Yeah. There's a there's a real desire in the UK for someone who isn't the Liberal Democrats to stand up and leave uh, and lead the Remainers. And it's not going to be the Liberal Democrats because uh, people are still mad at them about Nick Clegg going into coalition with the Tories. And there are still plenty of people in the Liberal Democrats who don't understand why that was a really bad idea. Still, they don't really get why what they did was wrong. And so people can't trust them. Right. So they're looking for literally any other party to stand up and say, we will lead you, Remainers. And Jeremy Corbyn's not going to do that, despite the fact that the, uh, you know, 48% of the vote UK-wide that would swing to his support and put him into government, like, that's winning a general election, 48%. The Tories are winning at 35 like, So the Tories, however, are unified against this in this disagreement with Scotland. Labour oh, yeah. is split, and the SNP is out on its own, basically. Yeah, um, and the Tories aren't necessarily unified. Um, the Tories not unified aren't unified? No, no. You have uh, a significant portion of the Tory party that's wondering why we're not nuking Brussels already. Oh, great. That they're okay. so anti-Europe, they would really like... Th these are people who threatened war with Spain, over Gibraltar. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So you have those hardliners who are ready to stab Theresa May in the back at any moment. And then you have the rational Tories who are like, I'm so glad that we put forth Theresa May as the sacrificial lamb to be ruined by this. Because 
I mean, that's yeah. what she is. She's yeah. she's the sacrificial lamb of the Tory party. The one person who has been left holding the bag. That's just great. That's and and she's got a divided party too with, you know, and the the kind of the leadership of the the rebel Tories uh are people like Jacob Rees-Mogg who if you don't know him, uh he's got uh Let's just say he has the stylistic choices of the 1930s and a mind from the 1390s. Well, you know, the thing is, I'm not as interested in the minutiae of Scottish and British politics necessarily, but it is interesting to watch them play out this battle of how do we deal with norms being broken? Because we're yeah. doing the same thing here. And so I, I am drawing some, I don't know, lessons some insight or um, it makes me think more about, I think, I think we're all going to have to sit down and figure out what these norms are to, and to uh, quantify them into specific legislation. And they need to stop being norms. They need to be things that are in writing. Yeah. Here's the thing. Like we have some norms that are being violated that aren't in writing, well, we have a lot of other norms that are in writing, which is why there's FBI investigations of everybody in the Trump administration, well, basically, right? because we do have things written down. And that's why Trump has been stopped multiple times at the Supreme Court from doing all these crazy things he wants to do, because we have these things written down uh, and Britain doesn't. So it's on the verge of a potential return of violence in Northern Ireland and breaking into multiple pieces which? over this. We predicted. Because they I mean, don't to... have this written down. Yeah. Right. And they, they do have some laws written down, but the problem is the concept of uh, par- parliamentary as opposed to popular sovereignty. Uh, Scotland is, is unique in that the Constitution is slightly different in Scotland, which is why it has a different legal system. Elizabeth is not the Queen of Scotland. She's the Queen of Scots because the Scottish people are sovereign. In, and that is, that is part of Scottish law. Uh, whereas in the UK wide scenario, it's parliament that's sovereign. So you can't have a court that questions parliament. The courts are subservient to parliament. They can knock down something if it's a blatant violation of of parliament's own laws, but parliament can always go back and say, okay, well, we're changing that law then and overrule a court. And Mm. so like they, they don't have anything in place to constrain the government if the government decides to go mad, as it appears to be doing right now. And this well, is why we're sort of looks that way over here, too, if you ask me. But yeah, but we have things to constrain them. We have a constitution. Yes and no. I mean, in other words, if, if um, Trump is found by Mueller to have done, you know, whatever, that only matters if. Congress decides they're going to do something about it. If Congress yeah. doesn't decide they're going to do something about it, there's no way to take him to court. So it's, I don't know. Well, and that's why Democrats need to be building a case for indictment rather than impeachment. And it should be like, if Trump has broken the law, he should, he should go to court over that. That's the case. So I think we need to start building, um, not removed from office, not impeachment, but if he's broken the law, he needs to face the consequences of that. Yeah, actual I don't actually think I don't actually think Robert Mueller is interested in the political aspects of all of this. I think he's just looking for what laws have been broken and and his report will reveal that information 
end of story. I think that's, I think he's, it's going to be it, in many ways, both very dramatic and very dry. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Robert Mueller is that he was hired to do to, uh, defense attorney stuff on the, on the federal level. And he had a real problem with that because he would hear these stories about how his clients broken federal law and his response was, well, it, it sounds like you should go to jail then, which is not what you want to hear from your defense attorney. Yes, right. Uh, that's who <laughs> Mueller is. And I think that's what we're going to see from him going forward. But yep. uh, it's not going so well for our friends across the pond either. Exactly. Next up on Hopping Mad, I'll be talking more about framing and getting into some more specifics here on Netroots Radio. We're back on Hopping Mad, and the last couple of weeks I've been talking about framing MMT, modern monetary theory, and why that's important and why we sort of start to narrow down how we talk about it. And last week I talked about my own new sort of analogy for MMT that likened MMT to the engine in your car and policy is the ways and means, the roads, you get to where you want to go, and values are your destination. In other words, things like universal health care, climate change mitigation, those sorts of things. And that we can talk to some degree about the car, about the engine, about how you get there. But what really matters and where we really need to start from when we start talking to people is to start from our values, to start from our vision of where we want to go. But listener Christina Leahy, who is at Blue Red Stater on Twitter, said the following, and I just thought it was really um, excellent, so I thought I would let you know what she'd said. I love the metaphor of MMT being the vehicle we use to reach our destination. It's like we have a Ferrari in the garage and we keep taking the moped because we can't afford the the Ferrari, never mind that we already own it. So, Christina, good job. (laughs) That's a great metaphor and I'm going to use that baby in the future. So, when we're talking about deficits and surplus, and we're trying to frame those things. Here are things you already know about this. When people are talking about federal budget deficits, they're talking about something that's neither good nor bad. It's a context issue. And the term deficit is itself terrible framing because it connotates a shortfall and is seen as negative, right? If somebody's talking to you about a deficit, that's a negative word. The term surplus is is also terrible from a modern monetary theory perspective, because it's viewed without context as being good. And since there's no such thing as national savings, the federal government doesn't actually store up money, the idea of surplus is a non sequitur. It doesn't make any sense. Savings, surpluses, those apply to financially constrained entities. That would be you, me, states, cities, businesses. But it does not... 
uh, applied to the federal government, which is an issuer of currency. What is constrained for the federal government is labor pool and resources. Those are the kinds of constraints that matter to the federal government. J.D. Alt says that because neoliberals have been so effective, we come preloaded with the the ideology of money scarcity, as he phrases it, and I refer to this as gold standard thinking, but I think J.D.'s framing may be better because it puts the focus from the public to the personal. Who gains advantage when money is thought to be scarce? Who is disempowered? Who is empowered? The dramatic shift of wealth to the top 1% does not accidentally coincide with austerity. That isn't a side issue. That's the point. It's why austerity was imposed. The mantra of the government is broke is used to control us. So we need to change that frame. What matters and what we should talk about is the outcome and even more importantly, the moral context. So When we talk about mechanisms, the engine of MMT and the whole car and ways and means uh, frame that I talked about earlier, that's something you can speak about. But as I said, let's speak from our moral context. We take care of our own, as Randall Ray says. And then let's talk about aspirations. Use George Lakoff's, wouldn't it be better if? to flip the conversation. So when people are saying the government is broke, then come back with a response to that that speaks from a place of vision instead of just feeding into the government is broke meme. We pay for fill in the blank, let's say the uh, climate, uh, climate change mitigation, the exact way we paid for quantitative easing, which wiped bad assets off the book of banks, or the same way we were paying for several wars at the same time. The Fed issues credits. Federal debt equals U.S. Treasury bonds equals government omies. It's interesting. Randall Ray talks about, we think about government debt as being IOUs, but actually, they're government owes, omies, right? When you have a dollar, that is a government omi. And why do we want fewer of those? I want the government to owe me more money, right? I want the government money in my pocket. Destroying deficits destroys profits. And that's a really good thing to say over and over again. Destroying deficits destroys profits. Uh, profits. And here's the big one. If there's less money in the economy, there is, in other words, right, if you are trying to eliminate deficits and balance budgets, then there's less money in the economy. If there's less money in the economy, there is less money in the economy. I'm not quite sure why neoliberals can't understand that, but that's a pretty facially obvious argument. Well, we do talk about mechanisms. Surplus and deficit should be viewed and discussed from the other side, from our side. People always talk about it from the public sector side, from the government's side of that conversation. We should be talking about it from our side of the conversation. 
So it it's point of view. It's an issue of point of view and point of view matters. But stri- try really hard to stay on the subject of outcomes. Remember that neoliberals never, they just never, they're so good at this. They never get bogged down in pay for, even with the Trump tax cut boondoggle. They did not get bogged down. They did not allow themselves to get bogged down in pay for and the mechanism of that. When it comes to tax cuts for the wealthy, of course, we can always afford to pay for that from their perspective and they never get bogged down in it and they don't talk about it. We have to stop stepping on the pay for rake. We just do. We take it in the face every time. When you talk about balanced budgets, there are things you already know. The government, the Congressional Budget Office, etc., cannot project the outcome of a budget, any budget, because economic effects occur which are beyond their control. And, you know, I've, I've talked about this before and said basically that the CBO can't project their way out of a paper bag, and I still think that's true, but... Changes in public spending, savings, are related to things like feelings of safety, right? You don't spend money, no one spends money that they can avoid spending when they're feeling insecure about the economy, right? You save it, you hoard it, you gather it, you know, you gather it in. We can't predict disasters, we can't predict wars necessarily. So CBO projections, that's just, you know, that's whistling in a hurricane, And, of course, never let anybody talk to you about scoring, dynamic or otherwise, because that's just, you know, bullpucky and just you can just move right on past that. So we should really be stop talking about federal budgets and instead talk about investment allocations, because if you're talking about federal budgets, you're talking about it again from the federal side. You're talking about it from the federal perspective, from the public sector perspective. Talk about it as investment allocations, which are our side, the the pub, the private sector view, our position. And if you talk about things from the federal budget side, you are only serving to arm our enemies, basically. It's the same with deficit. It's literally a term which serves zero useful purpose in an economy where there's a sovereign fiat currency and all debt is in that that currency. It's not a useful term. So, um, so we need to stop using it. We need to use words like investment allocations. And we talked in the very first conversation about framing in terms of why words are important. And investment allocation, you hear that very differently than you hear budget deficit. So investment allocation, folks. And we should stop using ratios as well. First of all, the most common ratio you hear is debt to GDP. And that's a completely, totally, completely meaningless number. And the other big reason is that People don't actually understand ratios very well, primarily because they don't understand numbers really well. And I'm going to play for you a clip from the West Wing that's up on YouTube that perfectly summarizes this. It's a conversation between Josh and Joey Lucas, and I just really thought this was the place to do that. Why not dial it up? Because these numbers just told us that you don't know what these numbers just told you. I'm an expert. I don't know what these numbers just told you. 
We know. We? Numbers don't lie. They lie all the time. They lie when 72% of Americans say they're tired of a sex scandal, while all the while, newspaper circulation goes through the roof for anyone featuring the story. So we don't really know what numbers are saying to us. And most importantly, ratios serve no real purpose again, except to pit conservatives against social safety net programs. That's And that's why they use them, by the way. That's the point of them using a number like debt to GDP. Every time we exceed to the use of those kinds of ratios, when we're talking about federal budgets, we're putting a cudgel directly into the hands of our opposition, and we have to stop doing that. So what do we say? We should allow government to invest in public policy priorities determined by the elected will to the level required to reach full employment, and we should be willing to exceed full employment by adjusting immigration opportunities. In other words, one of the things that modern monetary theory often talks about is we are limited by employment, by the labor pool, but we aren't if we allow more immigration. So really, the issue is to keep an eye on how we open up our gates, but that employment isn't the limitation we once once thought it was. And as I have been saying, we should be pursuing functional targets instead of financial targets. Talking about things in terms of dollars, we want, you know, the debt is this amount of money or the deficit is this amount of money, doesn't mean anything to people in comparison to we want to get rid of college debt. We want to um, have universal health care. We want to mitigate climate change. Those kinds of things those are the things that matter. We want to improve schools. We want to, you know, pave roads. We want to put in a, you know, an infrastructure, a green infrastructure that's more efficient and more effective and works better for more Americans than what we've got now. Those are the kinds of things, functional targets, not dollar and cents targets. When we're framing, we should be balancing the economy, which is labor and resources, against our values and morals, not against a ledger. So we should be talking about resources and people, resources and values, resources and morals, not resources and a ledger, because the ledger doesn't matter. And also, it's really boring. Oh, God, so, so very boring. Like, let them make the boring argument. We make the interesting one. That's right. Exactly right. So we're going to talk in the interview coming up, and we have have a really great interview coming up with Nathan Tankus from the Modern Money Network. And he's talking about some of the pushback that's been happening on Twitter related to job guarantees. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I want to talk for a minute about framing job guarantee. And this is a special hat tip out to Joe Firestone and his framing a job guarantee um, post that he put up at Real Progressives and at New Economic Perspectives. And he said, you know, you really need to watch out for pitfall frames like Everyone who's paid with federal dollars is a federal employee. Well, that's just facially not true. Private doctors and hospitals that are paid, you know, the federal government pays them for, for instance, Medicare patients. 
private heavy construction firms and workers are paid to build and re repair interstate highways. Every worker who works in the defense industry is receiving federal dollars. These are clearly all private industry. So when we talk about JG, we are not talking about creating a ton of federal employees. Then, of course, the, the, there are arguments that center around cost. <clears throat> and as I've said before, part of the response to that is to say back to people, we pay for job guarantee the exact same way we paid for quantitative easing, the exact same way we paid to save the banks, to rescue the banks. We just plus up the money. So it is, we don't, and we don't get bogged down in it. You say that, you move on. You know, you quip it and you move on because that is not where the argument is. We, by the way, lose more than a billion dollars a day in GDP productivity alone, just based on the on people who are unemployed, the productivity of people who are unemployed that is lost on a daily basis to the economy. And that doesn't even begin to touch on people who are underemployed or the hidden unemployed. But I do think Joe is really right when he says that this is the time to really bear down on educating people about modern monetary theory. And I think that's why it's really happening to such um, a more significant degree now. And it's why I'm talking about framing. It's why I think that's such an important discussion right now. We need the other, another one of the pitfalls is that the, uh, Job guarantee will create a de facto minimum wage that's too high for small business to withstand. And what they actually mean is that it's too 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 uh, substantial for big business too. But they don't want to say that. And small businesses, frankly, and as a small business owner, I can pretty confidently say that small business which are which are not agile, they die, and they die all the time, and they die for a hundred reasons, most of which neoliberal economists don't care about at all, and neoliberal pundits never even notice. So if they're talking to you about this thing in particular, there are 50,000 other things, and where were they on those? And I have a hard time believing that there'll be politicians running on, I want, I want businesses to pay employees less. <laughs> That's not going to look good on a bumper sticker. So the idea that they're trying to suppress wages, that's going to be awfully hard. That's going to be a hard sell. And neoliberals believe that businesses get, that get forced out by a $15 wage will deprive their communities of needed goods and services. But folks, that's not how their sacred cow capitalism works at all. A vacuum opens up, a vacuum, you know, a space in the economy gets opened up, a space in the economy gets filled. That's how capitalism works. What job guarantee will actually do is provide an employee buffer stock for small business. It will provide many, many more customers for business. It will provide a more stable economy, which is less prone to boom and bust cycles, which is good for all of business. And private industry businesses will, will benefit dramatically from the public purpose work being done by job guarantee projects. Next up on Hopping Mad, we have Nathan Tankus here on Netroots Radio.
back on Hopping Mad, and today I'm so excited because I, we were able to get Nathan Tankus. Nathan is a research scholar at the Modern Money Network, and I have been following Nathan for a long time on Twitter. He's a great modern monetary theory Twitter follow, and uh, this week I was super excited when I opened up Alphaville in the FT. It's a section of the Financial Times, and I opened it up, and there was an article by Nathan. So it's been a good week for Nathan all the way around, but he's been one of the real warriors on Twitter defending um, a lot of the defending job guarantee from a lot of the pushback it's been receiving during this big conversation that we're suddenly all having about about JG, which we really need to do. We really need to be having this conversation and answering these questions and pushing back against folks. And Nathan's really been on the front line of that. So I decided that this week, instead of getting someone that we essentially um, interview that what we would do would be to basically we're going to open up the mic for the very first time on Hopping Mad. We're going to turn the mic over to someone else and just let them talk. I'm just going to let Nathan talk. And I keep, by the way, saying I because uh, 90 seconds before we recorded this, Will lost power at his house. So if at some point in time you hear his voice come back in, it's because power's been restored. And I was able to add him into the conversation, but. Uh, right now, we're willless for no um, reason other than random annoyance. So, uh, please join me in welcoming Nathan. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. Um, you are you are at the Modern Money Network. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? Uh, the Modern Money Network is an organization devoted to uh, public education uh, and research around. Um, money and monetary issues and uh, macroeconomics more generally in that uh, and the intersections between topics that are usually not thought together like law and macroeconomics like law and macroeconomics and technology um, that the that the idea is that there are the intersecting issues um, that you need a lot of different disciplinary approaches to really get a handle on and that also we need to be having a richer uh, and better conversation about money in the pub in the public consciousness, and the point of the organization is to promote that as much as we can. And I think you know the last couple of weeks is is a signal that the, that that project is uh, having some success, at least some success. Yeah, I think that's. I absolutely agree. When I came back from the MMT conference last summer, one of the things I told listeners was that I was absolutely knocked back on my heels by the panels that were on things that involved MMT but weren't really about MMT. They were and they were involved activists from other or organizations outside of sort of the direct MMT world and how brilliant I thought that was and how much I thought it added to the conversation because you can see you can get the understanding that MMT isn't it isn't an end in and of itself. MMT, as I was explaining to folks last week when I was talking about framing, MMT is the engine in the car, but it isn't the destination. It isn't even the car. It's yeah. just the engine. It's how you get where you really want to go. And what matters is where we want to go. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think MMT is important and it's, it's a major paradigm shift. But that what, what's, what's important and powerful about that paradigm shift is rethinking what other disciplines have 
already thought about, thought a lot about. And it's rethinking things in anthropology and sociology and technology and in law and, 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 and taking somewhat different angles on them. And, but it's not a replacement. It's not MMT can't replace all the knowledge or if there's some conclusions that are invalid by not being consistent with MMT doesn't mean that there's not anything useful there. There's you know a massive amount of materials and so many different angles, especially if we're going to not just be talking about money in general, but promoting specific things like a job guarantee that there's, you, you have to, you know, the, the, it becomes a huge rethinking project. I mean, history itself is a huge rethinking project. That's something I've been interested in personally. There's a lot of things to rethink, but you also, there's a ton of material you have to absorb and take. The, there's still already a ton of insights out there. We had Last week we had Stephen Adewell on, and he's a, um, a historian, a policy historian, and he gave us all of this background, this history that gets us from you know, the beginning of talking about something that vaguely resembles a job guarantee program all the way through the the highs and lows of that to now. And it was much more, a much deeper dive on that than I had ever done before in terms of how I had thought about how history is affected by, um, in that way, by, um, or how JG is affected in that way by what's come before us. So it was um, amazing. So, but let me shut up and just let you talk about a lot of the pushback job guarantee is getting and your thoughts on that and and how best you think we can all frame moving forward. In other words, if you've got a good answer that you think is, um, short and sweet that we can give to people who are new, who are coming into this for the first time, for any aspect of this, for any aspect of how JG works in their lives, that would be useful. I saw somebody on Twitter, and it may have been you, it may have been Raul Carrillo, but framing, talking about MMT or talking about job guarantee as being something that's already paid for. We don't have to pay for it. It's already paid for. And of course, MMT does, says it basically we can pay for it, but that because of unemployment and the cost of lost productivity and all of those things, it's already paid for. I think that was Scott Fulweiler. Scott Fulweiler was yes. pushing that a lot uh, recently. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. I, I, I would say that I would want to like start by just saying that there is essentially three components through three criticisms you can group together um, that it's very difficult that there's some administrative issue or like there's some, these kinds of issues that, that make it sound like nice, but it's not going to work out. Um, there is cyclicality. Uh, this has been a huge focus, almost strange. Uh, there's uh, the idea that uh, you have certain, you have certain programs that, uh, that you absolutely can't have employment fluctuating cyclically in certain um, places. And I'm going to focus a lot on that. I think that a big thing that's being conflated there is that there's certain types of jobs that we think we don't want the staff to fall below a certain level. And that's being conflated, that kind of baseline and, and falling below that baseline is being uh, conflated with a counter cyclical fluctuation. And then the third component is 
we can, and, and it's sort of related to the first one, but it's its own argument in its own right. And there's multiple different forms of this. It just, we can get most of what you want doing something else or a suite of other things. Um, so on the, on the first thing, administrative difficulty, that's sort of been everywhere. Everyone is arguing administrative difficulty. Um, and I think that the, the key element of the administrative difficulty point is, is just the last 30, 40, if not longer years of, you know, believing that, that government or really even just people can't really do big things anymore or can't at all. That this is, that this is essentially what it reduces to. And I think, you know, Kate Aronoff's piece in, in these times responds very well to that point that actually the, discuss, the discussion of jobs programs being a boondoggle which is, you know, that original term for that, uh, has been going on for uh, decades, was a huge part of the New Deal, and was rebutted successfully by New Deal programs uh, to the point where, you know, administrators in the New Deal responding to these criticisms were like, these are ignorant people, like people who uh, make fun of people who learn a second language. It's the same kind of uh, just ignorant criticisms. Yeah. and. I, I think that that is the, that there's an essential truth to to that point that yes it'll there are a number of administrative challenges to doing a program but that's not a reason not to do that program it and, and it's sort of a it sort of doesn't go anywhere to say oh there's all these administrative issues you know? Law is nothing but administrative issues. There are administrative law judges around in all these different administrative agencies. We deal with massive administrative issues to accomplish a lot less than employing millions of people to do useful things. Um, And I think a a component of the, the administrative difficulty is a real underestimate of how much use socially useful things there are to do out there. Uh, Yes. And I think I think that, that that is to combine that the feeling that it would just be so difficult to administer a program like this is the equivalent feeling of thinking that it's it, it, that there just isn't you know much to do at all. Well, uh, and, uh, and 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 and, with, and the kind of apotheosis of this was Greg. Uh, I think it's Greg Ike's piece uh, in the Wall Street Journal, where he basically said, you know, all this talk of the job guarantee is replacing uh, flipping burgers and serving coffee in clean hotels with projects of marginal value. And, 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 and those were literally his examples. And it was such a telling moment because it was literally, you know, I have servants. I don't really want to pay the cost that it has to have servants or, God forbid, you know, be in a situation where my servants have another option and choose not to serve me. And that was literally, uh, literally the, the argument. And that also that, you know, that, that embedded in that idea is that there's a certain class of people who's, who there's nothing better they could do with their lives than being servants for their betters. And I think the, to go back to something you said right at the beginning of this, in terms of distributing the administration, Raul had a great response because he said that's already how criminal law works. 
it's already distributed to the the states and to localities. And, you know, my county sheriff here is doing that work. Yeah, Iglesias' tweet was incredible. They just want a no murder guarantee. And that's literally what it is. We've criminalized murder, which means if someone murders you, we investigate to catch them. Like you, if you, uh, 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 that's the equivalent. Obviously, it's much harder to, you know, truly implement a no murder guarantee than a than a jobs guarantee. But that's literally we don't like you know as as Gar Lippow quipped you know we don't set up a, a self defense uh, tax advantage savings account so that you can you know <laughs> put the money aside and and eventually you'll be able to afford to defend yourself against someone who wants to murder you. That's not how we deal with murder. We criminalize murder. And even as you were just pointing out, we leave it to states and localities to investigate. And yes, you know, there are still murders, but that doesn't mean you don't, you don't, you you don't stick with the legal guarantee that uh, murder is, is is criminal. And also it's just, you know, and it's a sign of the times that creating a job and preventing people from being murdered is, is an equivalently difficult task in the minds of someone like Matthew Iglesias, uh, who's oh. you know, <laughs> the star liberal, a star liberal pundit. It's incredible. I'm so mad at him this week. I hardly it's, have it's been, it's been English amazing. to put around amazing. it. It's been amazing. Uh, yeah, and he and he's like uh, childcare ex. These ex-cons as childcare, like the form, like all the formerly car incarcerated are the same, and uh, you know, go, yeah, go all back and tens tell of millions people of them should never be around children. Not to mention their own children that they take care of. Yeah. It's it's incredibly punitive, punitive, far right wing, and racially, do- as I said to him, racially dog whistling vision. It, it was it was the grossest. I mean, it was. I, it, 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 I don't even have the words to describe. And then, and then later on, he's talking about what his alternative program is, and it's three or four, like, oh, one program for the long-term disabled, one program for the long-term unemployed, um, one program for, uh, for ex-cons. We just need separate but equal programs, which, of course, is what uh, pointing that out earned me the block. I mean, you might as well just start accusing job guarantee advocates of wanting to give welfare mothers Cadillacs. And as best I could tell, he was rapidly blocking everybody who was trying to uh, present the other point of view. And uh, well, he it blocked was, Scott Fulweiler years ago, which is one of the most polite and erudite people on Twitter, but. He got both you and Raul this week. Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah, Ra- Ra- Raul only earned an extra ten hours after me. Uh, so the the, the, the optics of, of of blocking someone who isn't white, who is an advocate, you know, only only protected him for a few hours. Well, I did a whole section of the show, uh, what year and a half or two years ago, when Trump blocked me. So, you know, some badges we can wear with pride, even though it's incredibly uh, frustrating. Uh, So anyway, back to the subject. I'm sorry, I hopped in your way. 
No worries. Uh, so the other point that I wanted to uh, emphasize is the is cyclicality. There's been so much discussion, like especially you know focused on the on these things like childcare and elderly care. But what if you know you know you can't have these things cyclically moving? And what they're complaining is these are the kinds of professions where we think more people on a permanent basis should be employed in these professions than they are now. But it's important to point out, these things are already cyclically fluctuating. And, you know, child care and elderly care is already massively understaffed and fluctuates with the business cycle. It just fluctuates pro-cyclically rather than counter-cyclically. You know, people get, you know, pull, like, it's, it's, um, or, 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 actually, sorry, that's, that's wrong. They, they, they already move, not just cyclically, but counter-cyclically. People get better paying jobs than these horrible child care jobs, you know, in booms. And then in bus, you know, people are looking for anything and they, and they go into these professions. And they go into these professions or back into these professions. These are literally already counter-cyclical. The difference is we're talking about, you know, massively increasing their employment in bus and still increasing their employment in booms. And also on top of that, uh, you know, you know, separately, there should be permanent, permanent positions with, you know, being able to move up the chain in these areas. Well, and something I was trying to say yesterday, very inarticulately on Twitter, is that one of the things that job guarantee does is make the job market overall a steadier place. If you make it a steadier place overall, right, in yeah. in a big from a bird's eye view, then these jobs like childcare have to compete in the marketplace at all times. Yeah. Therefore, they themselves will improve. They will be better jobs. Yeah. So I think that's true. It it feed, those feed, those things all feed together. It's not we cannot just look at whether someone has a job and how much it pays. We have to also look at it from the bigger social fabric perspective. Yeah, but but this this baseline, you know, that certain jobs need a baseline of employment is being completed with you know these jobs. Their employment should never fluctuate, and and it's not a consistent position. I, you know, as I mentioned in, in my Twitter thread. I did my community service at a, at a kindergarten, you know, I, I did it and I did it for one semester of first grade after that. Should I have been not allowed to do that because, you know, the benefit of having me around fluctuated, there's this, the, the idea that we should have more permanent staffing in these areas has nothing to do with whether it, you know, it, it would help to have extra people around at certain times, even if that help isn't a permanent. And this conflation is so strange, and it seems like from people who have never really had an experience in education or right. in child care or in elderly care. You know, the actual people who work in these areas would take, you know, any help they can get at any time. And the, and the fact that you can't make a decade commitment doesn't matter to them because they're just trying to get through this year's kindergarten. That's, that's this. And, 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 and to the point that they'll take additional help that you can volunteer at any of these schools and you can volunteer and go to the most prestigious schools. Um, Listen, I mean, kindergarten you know, like, teachers like, are just trying to get through Tuesday. 
Oh yeah, no, you know that, that was that was my experience in getting through in getting through Wednesday. Just like they're just trying to get through Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, that that you know had been there Wednesday afternoon, even if it was just Wednesday afternoon, was you know a significant help. It, it, this this and, and and the other thing is that there's this idea. Oh, they are watching your children. I mean, this is what you always see. This whole thing is you know the formerly incarcerated are around your children. They are not the ones with fiduciary responsibility. The permanent staff still has the fiduciary responsibility, the responsibility of care to these children. Just, you know, having people around who, by the way, we're going to bet, and bet actually probably, you know, if I'm being honest, bet a lot more than I was betted when I did my community service at a kindergarten. Um, that The fact that the, they're around doesn't change the fact that the, that the people who are the responsible agents in these areas are responsible and every profession deals with. There are people who are responsible and people who are simply doing some activity. And this is already something that exists out in the world. And it seems the people who talk about these things seem to have no awareness of what these particular professions are like or what employment law is or what it regularly deals with on a daily basis. Right. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's maddening in, in a certain respect. Uh, well, this, the final thing I wanted to, the, or the third thing that I major kind of component, and there's all different elements of this, is some other program will, will, will do it better. One of the most interesting and sort of galling uh, things that, ha- that happened uh, in, the, in, in the pushback was Dylan Matthews' Vox article, where at the end of his article, he essentially said, um, yeah, there's problems in the labor market, but it's all, you know, this technical term, we don't really have to talk to monopsony, you know, the bargaining power of employers, and we can deal with that just with antitrust, and antitrust doesn't, uh, you know, cost any money. So it's, it'll be preferable to do a couple other things plus antitrust. And I think it's important to point out that the major people who've been pushing antitrust to deal with a lot of problems, people like Marshall Steinbaum, aggressively pushed back on the, on this argument that that at the very least these programs are complementary and that they shouldn't be um, poses against each other. And that's that's a very, you know, particularly dangerous one, but there's also other things. So obviously, you know, Matt Brunek has been for many years in in interlocutor, um, nominally on the on the left, in having these arguments. Uh, he, you know, kind of, you know, in sort of bad timing on this point, uh, on his on on his side, he accelerated his criticism um, during April, which you know culminated in uh, Bernie's and in, in all everyone else's announcement, and then Bernie's announcement of uh, their job guarantee bills. And he he comes at it from many different angles at different periods of time, but. Uh, his most recent thing is the idea that you can just do collective wage bargaining and that will stabilize wages. You don't have to worry about a spiral and then the federal reserve or something can fix employment. Obviously from our perspective, even if the federal reserve was unconstrained by inflation, we don't necessarily think it can generate employment, let alone sustain it. And there's you know a specific reason we want to target, you know, target, uh, employing employing every, everyone at a job guarantee level. It's just, you know, direct and to the point these people are involuntarily employed and we want to employ them. Um, and But it's important to keep track of these kinds of different 
uh, things that are going to be pushed forward because we're going to start getting in the phase where policies or suite of policies are going to be uh, argued are better alternatives to a job guarantee. And I think that is going to be a major thing that we're going to see a lot more of in the future. And folks, um, regular listeners know that I am an employer. I'm in a very rural district with very, very high unemployment. And there is no amount of antitrust limitations that would protect my employees from me if I wanted to be, if I wanted to pay below a living wage, still above minimum wage, but if I wanted to pay below a living wage, if I wanted to uh, change my benefit policies suddenly in a negative direction from their perspective, from my employee's perspective. In other words, from, I'm in this right to work state. From the perspective of my employers, the only thing that my employees, the only thing that protects them is how moral I am. And that should make you all nervous because, you know, I have good company. There are other, there are a lot of other small employers out there who are moral and great companies, but, you know, you've all worked for the ones that aren't. So this antitrust thing, I look at that and just scoff and move on. Because when is the <laughs> federal government going to notice me? You know, I'd have to put up a mushroom pl- cloud over this county for them to notice me. Yeah. Good point. Anyway, um, folks, uh, we'll be back on Extra Mad in just a few minutes. I want to thank Nathan for joining us today. Nathan Tankus, if you get an opportunity, go to Financial Times and put in his name and read the article. It's up on Alphaville, and Alphaville is one of the very few places on FT where you can read the articles. They're free, so please do it. It's great. And uh, Will and I, and Will, as I said, would be here if he could, but uh, we send out our thanks to Netroots Radio, our show's editor, Michelle LaShore, and especially to you for joining us today. You can find the broadcast version of Hopping Mad on Netroots Radio at 8 a.m. on Mondays. The full podcast version of our show is usually free or is free and usually includes an extended interview, which we call Extra Mad. The podcast can be found on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and most other internet podcast apps. Our website is on. I'm hoppingmad.com and you can listen to, download, or comment on the show there. We love to receive your comments. We make every effort to answer them as soon as our day jobs permit. You can find us on Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad. Will is on Twitter at WillMcLeod99. And I'm there, obviously, as Arliss Bunny. Hopping Mad is your place on progressive radio for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics, economics, and, of course, carrots. Until next week. Cheers. Next up, K-Ro in the morning here on Netroots Radio. We're back on Hopping Mad with Extra Mad and Nathan Tankus. Nathan is a research scholar at the Modern Money Network, as you've just heard. And Nathan, I wanted to start and ask you about something from your FT Alphaville article. Can you tell me why CBO projections, Congressional Budget Office projections, are usually not worth the paper they're written on and why in this particular case that is especially so? Uh, So I would say that, first of all, it's important to point out that the CBO's origins is um, this sort of post-Nixon, we need to, you know, have uh, contained the presidency somewhat. you know, related, he, he kind of tried to do fiscal policy unilaterally in certain moments with the Impoundment Act, and uh, he got pushed back on that a lot. 
but it was right at the moment of the the transformation of the of the Democratic Party into more fundamentally and completely a business party. So it happened right in that moment, and so it's connected with you know neoliberalism as you know term that's thrown around the left a lot, um, becoming more popular with Carter, and so the the focus on budgetary control and balancing the budget. Uh, it was right. It was the right moment at the right time to really start promoting that. You know, Nixon famously said, "We are all Keynesians now," and th- this is uh, the CBO is part of a complete break with that, with with that tradition and that you know essentially the golden years of budgetary politics. Uh, and so, and from 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 that point, you know, as it's very famous among uh, MMTers and post Keynesians generally. That they that their forecasts are not very good, and that specifically they don't really have economic dynamics, which means that when something happens in one area of the economy, it doesn't cause a, a feedback loop that affects another part. Uh, and the in among and when Godley's work is huge here, where they don't really even have the basic accounting structure set up in the economy. So they don't, they have all these scary projections of, you know, public deficits and um, government debt going to the moon and higher interest rates, but they don't realize that there's a private sector analog for all those materials where if anything that analysis that pointed to is more valid. And so you get projections like, oh, the, the private sector is going to run an 8% deficit relative to GDP for the next decade, which obviously doesn't happen when we have the Clinton recession. Um, but what I was focusing on in the FT article is something a little different, which is their healthcare cost projections. Um, and I should say their their ten year their their ten year or less projections, although still bad, at least have some economic logic in them. Their long term projections are pure these naive projections of the past into the future. And so, for uh, various reasons and series of programs, or just you know temporary periods of time. Healthcare costs have uh, healthcare costs, and and because of that, healthcare spending uh, at particular periods grew faster than overall GDP. And so, their, their long-term projections, their seventy-five-year projections, project that GDP is going to grow, that healthcare costs are going to grow one percent faster than GDP for decades and decades until at the end of the projections finally converges with GDP growth as a whole. And these are just insane, insane projections. Uh, they're insane projections because, you know, pre- predominantly because uh, healthcare costs are a component of GDP. So if it's growing faster than GDP, it's becoming a larger component of GDP, which means its growth rate is more and more influencing the overall GDP growth rate. So for it to keep continuously grow faster than GDP, the other components have to be slowing down in growth dramatically. And there's no reason to think that that would be the case. This is just pure, like a naive projection of the past and the future. And what's most maddening about it is that the CBO is supposed to assume no law changes, but it's assuming, but, but by projecting the past to excess cost growth into the future, it's assuming all the law changes that have happened, like the, the creation of Medicare, the expansion of, of Medicare in, in Part D program, various other healthcare expansions that we've had that we had in the eighties and nineties, it just assumes all of that and bakes all of that in into this seventy-five year projection, which is just completely crazy. And so, 
it, um, it's it's very galling. But the reason, essentially, that that there's been this long-term standard belief, both on the right and the center-left of economics, that we have a long-term entitlement uh, growth problem, you know, has had some to do with you know healthcare costs growing a lot in certain periods, like the 2000s or whatever, but has been mostly been based on this just pure, naive, non-economic projection. So to get back to, to the, I guess to go back to Twitter, <laughs> the, world, the world that is Twitter. Yeah. And a lot of the pushback there. You spent, and and I know Raul spent quite a lot of time talking about or retweeting about the difficult to administer, what I think of as the difficult to administer problem. And yeah. for for me, because I look around in cities and see all kinds of projects that are, you know, desperate, desperate for funding and desperate for people. And because city administrations already have, are already well-structured, I cannot figure out what they're talking about. I mean, I actually, I look at it and I think, okay, they would have to set up a mechanism to get the money from the federal level to the state level. But after it hits the state level, states who cannot generate their own currency, cannot are not issuers of currency, aren't going to have any problem figuring out ways to employ people by using that money. I, you know, Indiana is not going to be looking for make work projects. Indiana is buried in projects as it is. I, isn't that? Facially yes. obvious? Uh, well, I think the key element here is the implicit assumption that if something is worth doing, it would be worth doing to private, it would be profitable uh, for private capitalists to be doing. And I think that that's fundamentally the <laughs> issue that social, that what is socially useful is so wrapped up in what capitalists find profitable that there's something inherently Ill illegitimate or suspect about suggesting things that, that, that the private sector isn't already doing, or even that, you know, a nonprofit isn't already doing on behalf of some rich person donating that, that really, and I think this is a strength of the job guarantee. The job guarantee is challenging a whole series of people's notion of what is socially useful work and fundamentally challenging it at a, at a complete base level. But I think a lot of people have difficulty with that idea, with the, with the feeling that there are tons of socially useful, unprofitable things that could be done. And, uh, and, and that's the, I think the, the fundamental divide. I mean, you know, modern money network is, uh, is, uh, predominantly lawyers. We talk about administrative issues all the time and, uh, deal and the complexities of dealing with certain elements of law. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not unfamiliar with the idea that, you know, with multiple jurisdictions and, and all of this, that there'll be, we're going to hit into a lot of administrative complexity. The difference is we think that 
you know, administrative complexity can be handled and that it's worthwhile to do socially useful things. And from the point of view of a lot of these center-left pundits uh, and Matt Brunegg, that's just a fundamentally false assumption that, that most, if it was socially useful, basically private capitalists would be doing it. And if it's something that's, and this is the other key point, if it's something that's so socially useful that, you know, we quote unquote should be doing it, or it would be useful to do, then it would be useful to permanently fund. So like, for example, from Matt Brunick's point of view, Matt Brunick is a person who certainly cares about child care and cares about the right to child, uh, the, the right to child care, the right to good child care. But he is, but you know, that and a couple of other things are the things he's interested in, and he thinks those should be government programs that are permanently funded. So there is a viewpoint of there are socially useful things that aren't being done, but it's a viewpoint that essentially says if they're worth being done at all, then they have to be done by like a per, by a government program that's you know completely devoted to that activity. Yeah, because that's worked so well in the past. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, and, and and I think I think that the fact that the job guarantee is suggesting that there's a whole bunch of activities that we, yes, could live without potentially, but that they would be socially useful to do. And that at the very least, there is a spectrum uh, between socially useless and absolutely emergency socially useful activities. And that spectrum, that spectrum is politically contestable that we can argue with each other about just how socially useful X or Y thing, and the market isn't the barometer of that, I think that that idea is fundamentally challenging to a, to a lot of the people who are commenting. And I think it's the key, the key difference. The belief that there's a range of activities that would be socially useful isn't necessarily an emergency, but would still be socially useful to do, and that people would enjoy these public goods in their lives, that that idea... You know, basically, people haven't really considered that since the aftermath of the New Deal and living it. Some of the pushback I've seen on Twitter has to do with the business perspective, not that, not just that JG would cause them to have to actually pay a living wage, God forbid, but, you know, setting their hair on fire about having to be decent human beings, but the concept that JG would crowd them out. And that yeah. it would, you know, people would rather do some kind of socially useful work than say, would you like fries with that? Yeah. To, you know, which my response is, then make your job a better job. You know, you don't deserve to stay in business. You cannot compete with a JG program. Yes. I, mean, I fundamentally agree with that, but obviously that's challenging as well. That's the flip side of suggesting that there is socially useful work that isn't being done is suggesting that just because certain work is uh, profitable doesn't necessarily mean that it's socially useful. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's interesting for as much as the market logic is about the quote unquote choices of people, the idea that, you know, and, and you're supposed to just be reflecting the consumer's first, uh, uh, preferences. Suddenly when it comes to giving people at the bottom end of the labor market choices, choices are now illegitimate. I mean, you know, from a certain perspective, you can argue, well, I thought preferences were everything. If they prefer doing these activities than doing 
these low-end uh, private sector jobs, doesn't this suggest that they think that these activities are more socially useful than the low-end uh, private jobs that they were doing? Um, but I, I wouldn't want to push this too far. I think that there are medium-term and long-term challenges that the job guarantee poses to people on the low end of the labor market um, in terms of the kind of pay, uh, work quality, and benefits mixes that they're offering people. But I think that uh, some of this, and certainly there, I think there will you know, be some if some employers who can't who, who can't handle the competition with the job guarantee, which is good. So, for example, you know, I have to mention Tressie McMillan's column and her great book, Lower Ed. You know, that book is explicit, and, they're, and, and you know, for-profit colleges are explicit that their competitors are military and low-end jobs. And, you know, I absolutely think that for-profit colleges should be competed by the job guarantee out of business. Uh, and I think that they probably would would be. Uh, and and that's the the key element there. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, that that's the that that the, so there is some activities, but I think that that there will be other types of jobs where you know we still need we still need you know food service at the retail level, and those jobs will still exist, and the prices will in will increase and. The pay will increase, and also turnover will fall back down. Um, you know, there's there's a sort of trap you're in with a whole bunch of people, uh, where you're where you uh, pay, uh, sorry, uh, where you pay a lot of people, um, and where you don't pay, you pay a lot of people a little bit of money, and then you're getting this huge turnover of people leaving and going. And you feel a little trapped in doing that kind of thing uh, because that's what everyone else in the industry, in, in your sector, is doing. But when you have a job guarantee baseline, potentially you'll be able to move to a you know, better quality, lower turnover type of situation and also probably have to improve the job somewhat. So I'm actually a little, or maybe, you know, <laughs> McDonald's is going to have to lower its franchise fees to you know, keep its McDonald's in business. I think that, you know, for what's, what's strange about these conversations is corporations are supposed to, and corporations and businesses are supposed to be the most innovative, you know, brilliant whirlwind force uh, in the world, but also we're supposed to, you know, not do anything to, that changes its environment at all because it's completely incapable of adjusting. And I think certainly probably some businesses will be permanently threatened by um, in their existence by a job guarantee, but a lot of businesses will figure out uh, how to adjust. And isn't the whole point, you know, of allowing them to do their activities that they can, you know, adjust and be resilient in a changing environment. Well, and I, I absolutely, and I've said this many times about JG, but I absolutely think that when employers are railing about their costs, excuse me, this is me with my hand in the air, but have you not noticed that for most of you, sales are going to increase as well? So don't, you know, this is not one thing without the other thing. 
So for me, it actually won't change my costs. The implementation of JG wouldn't change my costs, but it'll sure as hell cause me to sell a lot more. So, you know, I couldn't be happier. But, you know, I'm not everybody, but I'm just saying it is always, employers always see things or they yell about things from the cost side, but you never see them talking about how much more money they're making until they file their quarterly returns. For sure. Anyway, uh, so um, let me talk to you a little bit about um, automation and how automation is going to change the job market. Your thoughts on that. And I know that a lot of people are setting their hair on fire about automation. Warren Mosler is not as worried. So do you have thoughts? Yeah, uh, I think that automation is extremely overblown. I mean, for example, one of the most interesting things is that now, productivity has been lower over the last decade since the great financial crisis. So this, this narrative that automation is coming in, coming to take everything, you know, I think we should you know, see some, some element of some sign of that somewhere. Uh, and that I don't think that it's showing up in what's, in, in what's going on. Um, but that also, uh, it's not, wouldn't be a bad thing. So for example, I think one of the things that would adjust in the job guarantee is that you would start seeing productivity increases because, uh, because people would ha- would, would actually, you know, want to, you know, have use uh, techniques that use less labor because the labor market is actually t- tight again. And you actually have to, you know, pay people wage increases. Uh, my, so someone uh, in New York City, J.W. Mason, uh, who is at the Roosevelt Institute in John Jay, uh, 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 Cooney School, has done a lot of uh, great work pointing out and on, on whether we're really in full employment, that productivity has dropped off and that the periods where we saw productivity acceleration, um, like the late 90s, it wasn't based on technologies that had just been invented by, you know, tech geniuses, by, by Silicon Valley geniuses. And technologies that existed for decades that it wasn't profitable that it wasn't profitable to implement because wages hadn't risen, and that as soon as you know wages the, the labor market had started getting tight and wage increases had started really kicking in for a few years, suddenly there was all these technologies on the shelf that employers were willing to uh, to use, and I think it's it's and and in, in in that process that means you know increasing investment, which is also increasing spending. I'm not particularly worried about about automation. I think that there's, you know, two ways to go with automation of, of these productivity increases. Either there are lowering costs and lowering prices, in which case, you know, people's you know, real income or, you know, the, the amount that they can spend on other things goes, then just the product that has been automated goes up. And I think this is actually, you know, a big part of, you know, increased spending on things like healthcare um, that, these things don't have productivity increases and thus, you know, we devote more and more to our income to those things as the automated, uh, as the automated uh, jobs go away. But the second, you know, businesses could just be have lower costs and higher profit margins. In which case, you know, there might be some un- additional unemployment to that, but it's not a story of, oh, it's just impossible to employ anyone to do anything socially useful. What it's about is, you know, that they are, it's about, you know, a a classic Keynesian story of that, you know, businesses are saving too much or 
you know, the people who get paid dividends are saving too much, and thus we need more spending in there. Um, you know, but with a job guarantee, product, you know, productivity increases and automation are something that we can take as benefits. You know, the, the, the dream of 20-hour, 15-hour less work weeks are something that if productivity economy-wide are going up far enough, we can start giving people paid leave. You know, pay people 40 hour a week, you know, on a job guarantee wage, and it's, and they only work 35. And you can do those over a number of years, and the, uh, the private sector is going to have to match you. And that's one way of, of ensuring that productivity gains are shared in having more leisure time. So, you know, I'm not, you know, there's, from multiple different angles, I'm not uh, concerned about, automation, and I think that a lot of the mainstream narratives about automation are locked into um, a, a, a vision that doesn't have any room for publicly socially useful, and that the word, and, and, that, the, and that if you only see uh, not even just private capitalist activities as useful, but you only see... Uh, you know, manufacturing work as something really useful because, you know, guys with big burly muscles who are, who are working and you don't see the kind of, you know, short staff childcare or, you know, the, or, you know, nursing and all these, these, you know, what uh, a certain tradition calls socially reproductive activities. Now, if you don't see those and, or value that kind of work, whether it's happening in the private sector or whether it should be happening in the public sector, then, you know, then all you see when you see automation is the only socially useful activities going away. And that once manufacturing is fully automated, then there's nothing socially useful left to do, which I just don't think is a reality that we're ever going to be dealing with. Yeah, I agree. And I also don't think that manufacturing will ever be fully automated. But the there are more people working in manufacturing now than have ever been working in the United States in manufacturing before, just more in rough yeah. numbers, not as a percentage yeah. of the population, just more. So there are more jobs out there tucked away in little companies like mine that nobody ever notices and they drive past all the time and don't know we're there. That kind, those kinds of jobs are everywhere. It used to be that manufacturing jobs were just in big buildings with smoke stacks on top and, you know, were gigantic operations. And now there are a bajillion little guys like me. And those bajillion little guys like me, <laughs> there's not going to be a whole lot of automation in those, in those companies. There'll be some, but not much. Yeah. And, you know, and yet we continue to compete. We compete all over the world. So uh, I I am not fearing automation in the same way that others are. And if people are afraid of job aut of automation, then JG ought to just look that much better. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, JG yeah, is, but, almost but, but, the is almost the, we can, we can solve the automation fear argument, uh, you know, almost. Yeah, but if you don't see that there's anything socially useful to do outside of what private capitalists are already doing, if you if you if you can't see that, then a job guarantee just looks like 
UBI with work Make requirements. Work, yeah. Like we're just we're just going to humiliate these people with useless activities um, until uh, you know until someone finally goes, "I'll stop doing that." You know, just you know, give them the give them the checks and let's be on our way. That that's the that's the fundamental divide. That it's it's you know, I think that you know maybe there are counter arguments that certain people who defend UBI and defends you know a basic income focus rather than an employment focused uh, uh, vision of dealing with these public issues. But I think fundamentally that the core thing that I that I think you know, is, is, is the difference and the core thing that we should be arguing about is the idea that there are socially useful activities outside of private sector employment and we, and there's, and it would be socially useful to do dozens and dozens and dozens of that, those activities, even if it doesn't see, if no, no particular activity feels dramatically urgent right now. Um, and I think that, you know, good point that I think, um, Maybe Scott Ferguson has made, but uh, but I think it might have been someone else. Is that this sort of same logic of there's this useful stuff that has to do with private sector employment, and then there's everything else has been part of of deadening uh, the our our educational system. That oh, you know, who yes. really needs art? Who really needs uh, you know you know public outside activity? Who really needs recess? Like. They should just be, you know, students, you know, getting down to the science and the math that a lot of that, that, that has really, you know, taken away a lot of the, the, the lived joy uh, of, of those kinds of activities. And when you take a macro perspective, you know, you can sort of see the logic of every micro decision, every, you know, cut to an arts program. But at the macro level, educationally, it's really hard. And I feel very strongly about that because I went, I was lucky enough to go to a public high school where that wasn't the case, where there was a playwriting program and there was a greenhouse and there was a, you know, film photography room and, you know, and, and you had access to all these different, and there was art and the, these were major uh, elements of, of the curriculum and not just, you know, the great in themselves discussion-based activities and also a, fil- a film program itself with people who I know who, uh, because of that high school experience, went into professional photography and professional filmmaking. Um, that, that having that is, but not because, you know, I'm not pointing that out because, you know, I think, you know, everything should just be about the job, but it's about finding things that in, in, enrich your life and, a lot of the, you know, the same instinct I see is the same instinct behind why does the school need uh, need a, a dark room uh, to develop, you know, old 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 photos, old style photos. <laughs> yeah. Why does it need a film program? Why does it need a greenhouse? Why does it need a, a playwriting program where you can go see, you know, Broadway plays? Why does it need this stuff? Is extraneous to the real, you know, hard education stuff. Uh, I, I see the same instinct behind the deadening of public education. Well, and it gets bigger than that. When you go up to the university level, liberal arts universities are really, really struggling. And part of that is because 
even though somebody may have a passion for history or a you know a passion for philosophy what they're doing is becoming cpas and they don't have a passion for being a cpa but they're thinking there might actually be a job out there that they can get by being a cpa and the problem with that is that then you train a history mind or a philosophy mind to be a cpa and it is it is absolutely clear to me it when I, I discovered M- MMT because I heard Stephanie Kelton on a podcast, but I'm a physicist by training. And so as she's talking about this, all of a sudden my brain clicks into, oh, this is flow. And I, yeah. it made complete sense to me in terms, I mean, immediate, fast, complete sense to me in terms of flow because I'm a physicist and that's how physicists' brains work. You know, that's how we view basically everything. So that training, that's everything. And when you narrow your society down to thinking in only this, you know, five or six or 10 or 12 very specific fields and very specific ways. And if everybody is a programmer or an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or a, if you don't, if you do not have artists and people viewing the world that way, then there are also problems you cannot solve and things you cannot dream and places you cannot go because nobody has the vision to get you there, to even mention it. Yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's fundamentally the case. And, then, and that isn't to say anyone who agrees with the idea that there's a series of socially useful work outside of the market can't find, you know, a, a, a different thing that they, uh, that they want to put forward or have counter arguments why the job guarantee isn't the best way to, you know, to actualize that, you know, they can have those positions, but that's not the argument we're having now. And I think, and I see that as the, the fundamental divide. And until, you know, there starts to be an argument about that there's a range of socially useful activities that are outside of, you know, a private employer logic, uh, that and that and that not to say that you know we need to just replace all of those with uh, from the private employer activities, but just you know have a room of space for that. Until we have that discussion, I think that a lot of the the job guarantee criticisms miss the mark because they don't see that this is the fundamental thing. This is the actual thing we're going to argue about, rather than stupid straw mans about about uh, formerly incarcerated people in child care yeah. or. Or, you know, comparing it to, you know, a fantasy because, you know, no murder guarantees or, or uh, you know, the latest uh, Brunegg screenshot thing that I screenshotted, which was, uh, you, know, you know, unemployment is a lower carbon intensive job than a job guaranteed job. Just, you know, silliness. Yeah. I, it, it, I think the silliness is just, you know, distracting from this is the actual argument is what is what actually is socially useful and can we be politically contesting that outside of arguing about, you know, what private businesses do? Right. So is there anything else you'd like to, to um, say to sort of wrap things up? Um, I will throw one thing in there. Um, you know, a lot of MMT discussions, they're pricing, costing these kinds of issues, investment decisions come up. Um, and, Someone who doesn't come up enough, but I'm sure if you follow me on Twitter, you see me bring them up all the time, is uh, the late Fred Lee. Fred, yeah. and, and, and the notable thing about Fred Lee is 
that he was he was a professor at UMKC teaching all the graduate microeconomic courses from 1999 to 2014, uh, and when he died, and so that that it might not be you know obvious uh, in the publication discussions about MT, but he and you know his approach to developing an alternative microeconomics has had a massive influence on MMT and also all the graduate students who are sort of around MMT. And um, one, and in that context, I think that there's something job guarantee relevant to bring up, which is the idea that there's different notions of price stability, but one of the notions that's most important that doesn't get enough uh, discussion, which is a notion that goes back to Gardner Means, a famous economist who, you know, his work is most famous from the work he did in the 1930s, um, is this idea that that price stability matters is that businesses are holding a price constant for a period of time and series of transactions that there might be some element of some businesses that where you're having you know transaction specific prices but for the most part either whether it's through a long a medium term a long term contract or whether it's just that the store just has the price tag up there every day that prices prices at the business level stay stable for, or, or at the market level stay stable for a long period of time and then move. And that that's the kind of price stability that it's important to preserve, that even if a job guarantee wage or job guarantee benefits package changes once a year, and that means, you know, that means, you know, higher inflation rates than if we just never change the job guarantee benefits package, um, that, uh, that, since we're preserving you know, what, I, what I've started calling Meansian price stability, Gardner Means style price stability, that that's the most important thing in terms of price uh, price stability, and that so we can have a job guarantee with these one-time movements, where say you know we reduce the the work week and keep the, uh, the weekly pay the same, you know, two hours every year, uh, and that will that's something that, that we can do and it's not inconsistent with price stability, even if, you know, inflation rates go up and down because inflation rates are just these weighted averages and an inflation rate can move, um, can change because the weighting of a certain type of, a uh, certain category of prices is changing, even though no actual business is uh, changing, is even changing the prices or certainly not accelerating their price changes. Um, and so while, you know, in the public conversation, arguing uh, in, in the business press and with economists, it's important to be able to discuss the inflation rate, which is just this weird weighted average thing with all these weird quirky components um, that, you know, in terms of what, how we're thinking about it, um, that inflation rate stuff is less important uh, than just the, than that, than the means price stability where prices are being held, which I don't even have to, I'm, I don't have to tell you this. You know how long you, you've been holding your prices steady. It and is. When you them. If you could see my face, you would see this huge grin on my face. Last year, at the end of the year, about Thanksgiving time, my company decided we were going to raise some prices. We then yeah. went through our entire marketing team, then started working much longer hours than you know than normal everybody's suddenly working 50 and 60 hours a week and because for six weeks that's what it took us to roll out price increases yeah and we you know the enormous 
amount of work it takes for us to renegotiate all our distributor contracts, roll out the big presentation for our dealers, make those presentations in all the different places, fly to meet with dealers to explain why this has to be different. You know, all of the stuff it takes to roll out those price changes. This isn't an email on a Tuesday morning. This is, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is a freaking huge amount of work. It costs me an enormous amount of money, basically, to change my prices. So what, you know, the, that decision is, is ridiculously huge and I don't make it unless I absolutely have to. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and, this, that's just me. and, and, and what's interesting about all those things is all those things are about your social relationships, that the, your, your social relationships with your dealers, your social relationships yeah. with, you know, the, all of that is about, is about social relationships and, you know, economists talking about prices or like, you know, the, those, those, those damn intersecting curves, the social relationship is completely gone. Even, you know, more mainstream economics and stance that is, you know, recognizes that business set prices, they're talking in terms of, well, there's a slow, there's prices are sticky. There's slow to adjust. You know, a demand shock happens or a cost shock. And, you know, they just don't respond immediately, but they'll respond a little bit you know, completely obliviates that, that social, the, the actual, you know, difficult things that it, the, the effort you have to put in, which is your social relationship with your customers and their customers. If you're, you know, further up the supply chain, uh, the, the, this idea that you can just like have prices bounce around, um, it doesn't work. And even when we do it in small little areas like Uber surge pricing, it's dramatically controversial. It's not something that's going to be universalized. And if you see a lot of the pricing conversation, especially, you know, by the more Silicon Valley pricing, they sort of think that we're, we're, we're going to move everything towards this, you know, algorithmic pricing. Uh, yeah, they're ridiculous. And that, yeah, it's, that, and that's, and that's, you know, insane. It's going to be important. It's going to, you know, grow in importance over time. But you, you can't replace, you know, if you actually social, make social a thing, relationships with an algorithm. That's right. If you actually make a thing or grow a soybean, as opposed to, um, you know, a, a, providing a place for a tweet. That you see the world very differently, and the other, you know, the other thing about that, and the other thing that that we haven't said is that these relationships aren't just domestic. These relationships are all over the world. If I raise my prices, I have to think about my dealer and my, my distributor in Moscow. I have to think about my distributors in China. I have to, and you know, what am I saying to them? And you know, where's the exchange rate? And you know, all of that stuff has to feed into these decisions. And I'm a tiny, tiny little company, so I'm a tiny little company trying to figure out okay so the you know the tariffs in brazil are different than the tariffs anywhere else in the world if we do this what does this do to my dealer in you know in brazil and you know i'm sorry but prices aren't just sticky prices are freaking glued down and you have to pry them up with a you know with a spatula with a metal spatula to get them to move it's hard and and i just don't you know, Silicon Valley can do whatever Silicon Valley wants to do, but it's not going to be what the rest, it's not going to be what the Midwest does, to, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, precisely. I think I think a lot of, uh, uh, and, 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 and it's important to, to keep that key element that, you know, you put in all that effort um, and that price, you know, but the actual pricing move can be larger and smaller. 
and that can feed into the inflation rate, however it feeds into it. But the fact that you're only, you know, at the very most, you're only going to do it once a year, or probably, you know, in your context, probably wait much longer than that. Yeah. That the that 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 fact means that there's there's an inherent stability to, you know, how the economy works, regardless of you know how this weird weighted average where, you know, motor vehicle insurance prices went up a lot. So, you know, that's keeping the inflation rate up. Right. Uh, and, 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 and to, you know, we, if, if that kind of, you know, distinction is hard to make in, in the public press, although I hope we make, we, we push that forward in the future, but among adventeers, it's important to think about that that's the price stability that we care about. And even a relatively fast moving job guarantee can be consistent with that kind of price stability. Right. That's exactly right. Well, Nathan, thank you so, so very much for taking so much time uh, with us today. I really uh, appreciate it. And I'm sure Will would have loved to have been here if he wasn't sitting in the dark in his house but in Virginia. But um, I thank you so much. And uh, we would love to have you back. I know. So anytime anything comes to mind, let me know and uh, you know, send me a tweet and we will go from there. Will do. Thank you very much. Uh, See you soon.